You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. You guys want to go ahead and take your seats? All right. So I see we got quite a few visitors here. My name's Dave. I'm the teaching pastor here at Revolution, and we're super glad that you guys are here. Recognize uh, quite a few of you are out of town or from out of town, but we're glad that you guys are here this evening. Uh, but go ahead and open up your Bibles to Psalm 88. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Psalms this summer, and uh, I want to go ahead and say I apologize for how hot it is. There's something wrong with our AC. Like, I've got my Pentecostal preaching rag out. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's always the bald-headed minister just pouring sweat. Um, but we are Baptists, uh, not Pentecostals. If you are Pentecostal, that's, that's okay, brother. Um, expect the hate mail now. Um, yeah, that's probably the last little laugh thing I'm going to say. Uh, Psalm 88. Before we get into the text, let me, let me start with saying this. Um, depression is a terrible thing. Depression is an awful thing. If you've ever went through a season of real depression, and I don't mean something kind of bad happened to you or something bad happened to you and you were upset for a little while. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a season of real depression. You know that it's something that you never want to deal with ever again. Ever again. It's a living nightmare. You don't want to do anything. You, you don't want to take care of yourself. You want to sleep all day. Everything seems pointless. You can't find any relief, right? Day or night, no matter what you do, there is no relief. And it's the worst whenever you can't figure out why you're going through it. You ever been there? You're in a very deep depression and you don't know why. That's the worst. You're like, there's nothing really even in my life. I just feel forsaken. I feel like there's no point to anything. Sometimes Christians deal with this. Right, we can't find relief. It just seems like one thing after another keeps happening to us, and, and, and we stay beaten down. Right? And, and we pray, and we read our Bibles, we go to church, we talk it over with other Christians. Right? In other words, we stay faithful through the whole thing, through the whole thing, but it won't go away. It just won't go away. It's as if God is hiding his face from us and allowing us to walk in darkness and despair. And, and sometimes the depression and trials last so long or are so awful that we think that God has forsaken us and that he doesn't love us anymore or that he doesn't care about us. And that, my friends, is the worst feeling in the world, to feel God forsaken. To feel abandoned by God is the greatest misery that a believer can face. And Psalm 88 deals with those kinds of feelings. Tonight's psalm is one that has a place all by itself in the Psalter. Right? It's very, very unique. It's a psalm of lament, right, or a psalm of sorrow. And those are pretty common throughout the psalms. Uh, but unlike most laments that have a ray of light toward the end of them or somewhere sprinkled in there, there's always a ray of hope like, Lord, I suffer. I don't know why you're doing this to me. My enemies are after me. I, I have no peace. I have no relief. But you will rescue me. Right? Most psalms have that kind of a pattern in them if it's a lament. But this one stays dark the entire way. And what little light that there is in the psalm is concealed. 
This psalm actually stands. Every commentator mentions this is the darkest psalm in the Psalter. It's arguably the darkest chapter in the whole Bible. And if you've never read Psalm 88 before, it takes you by surprise and, and honestly may make you wonder why it's even in the Bible. I know some people, they read it at, at first glance and they say, was this written by a believer? It's just so hopeless. Just such a hopeless chapter. But this psalm is incredibly helpful to the Christian. It reminds us that pain and sorrow is part of life and that believers are not immune to suffering. It teaches us that God may allow us to wander in darkness for a long period of time. And it shows us how a faithful believer continually cries out to God even in the midst of intense pain and suffering. Right, this psalm was recorded for our benefit. The Bible is not a collection of arbitrary sayings and chapters and books. It's for our benefit. So my prayer is and has been this week that for those of you who are not in a depression... Who are not, or everything's pretty good for you right now. My prayer is that God would prepare your hearts to suffer. That He would prepare you to suffer in a godly way. And for those of you who are currently suffering intensely, and I know that you are, I know for a church of 35 members, we have a lot of pain. My prayer for you is that God would encourage you in this psalm that you are not alone. So here's my big idea. Here it is. The people of God can hurt badly and have immense sorrow, but they continually run to the God who has allowed the pain but has not abandoned them. So that being said, let's read Psalm 88. A song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to the Mahalath Leanath, a maskil of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you, in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. 
They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This truth that you had, uh, that you inspired and had recorded down for us, this inerrant, infallible truth that we humble ourselves before. Spirit of God, we ask that you would teach us, that you would enlighten our minds and open our hearts to receive the word, that you would give us understanding. God, teach us how to suffer. Teach us your goodness in the midst of suffering. Comfort us through your word this evening, I pray, and through the gospel of your son. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so darkness is the last word of this psalm, and that's really fitting. As we just saw, this psalm is a lament through and through, the most thorough lament in the entire Bible. But what's interesting is that the situation that brought on the suffering is never mentioned, right? Like in, 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 the, uh, in, in the introductory notes, right, to the choir master, a song of Heman, the Ezraite, that, that's actually part of the inspired text. It doesn't tell us. It gives us no historical, this is what was happening to, to Heman, the Ezraite. It doesn't tell us anything like that. And throughout the psalm, there's never any circumstance really pointed to that this is what was happening in his life to bring the suffering on. So let me give you something to think about in light of that. God, in his grace, has left this psalm open. He's left it open for us to use it and to apply it to any situation of intense suffering. Right? And you might not see it this way, but that's a great mercy to you. Right? God has given you inspired, infallible words to speak and pray when you don't know what to say. Right? Again, I've said this a few times. Uh, w. Robert Godfrey, a theologian, uh, said that God has given us the Psalter, and in the Psalms we will find things that we would never dare say to God. Because we're too holy to say those things. But God's given us a book and he says, here, say it. I know that you're feeling it. Let me show you how to say it in a way that does not sin against me. This is great mercy for us that when we don't know what to pray, this psalm provides us a prayer. And I love how real that this psalm is. Right? It's real, it's messy, it's dirty, it's grimy. Right? Anyone who wants to say that the Bible is just this pie-in-the-sky nonsense, that's, that's stupid. Right? This, this is a grimy psalm. It's so open about sorrow and pain. And the fact that this psalm is so open and plain about the author's heartache tells us something. And please hear this. God is not threatened by raw honesty. God's not threatened by your honesty. And he wants us to be real with him. He wants us to come to him and lay our complaints at his feet, to lay our requests at his feet. He wants us to go to him and cry out, to say how we feel. And let me give you a caveat with that. To say how we feel so long as we never accuse him of wrongdoing. That's whenever you cross the line into sin. But we can go to God and tell him how we feel. God is so compassionate to us and he beckons us to come to him and to lay ourselves out before him. Alright, so let's go ahead and jump into this text we're going to go line by line. We're going to take some big chunks out of it as well. And let's try to get inside the mind of Heman, right, the, the psalmist, and see what we can learn. First he says, O Lord, God of my salvation. O Lord, God of my salvation. This phrase is the root that holds the psalmist together. O Lord, God of my salvation. Throughout his suffering, this is the root. Everything is grounded here. 
right? Remember this first verse for the rest of the psalm where you're going to lose yourself in the sorrow. Oh, Lord, God of my salvation. Lord, right? That all caps, Lord. I don't understand why English Bibles don't put Yahweh here, right? Oh, Yahweh, God of my salvation. This is God's personal name. He's revealed himself to his people as Yahweh. When he cries out, when he prays, he uses God's personal name. And it's not just his personal name, it's God's covenant name, which tells us that this person is a believer. Right? Don't get me wrong, people who don't belong to God's covenant can say Yahweh and call God Yahweh for certain. But in this context of a prayer, he's coming to God saying, God, I know you, and you know me. You've covenanted with me. Right? God has covenanted with this psalmist. Meaning he's made promises to this psalmist to, to, to be the psalmist's God. That this psalmist, Heman, is part of God's special possession. He knows God and is known by God. And God has promised to sustain and keep him. God has promised to do good to him. God has promised him heaven as his home. To forgive him of his sins. And God has promised to never forsake him as his God. He's covenanted with this man. The psalmist knows the true God and is known by God, so he uses God's name, O Yahweh. And he calls God the God of my salvation. This is an expression of faith. God of my salvation. He's saying, you are the God that I trust in. You're the one I trust in for this life and for eternal life. O God of my salvation, you are the rescuer that I look to. God of my salvation, my only hope is you. I trust you. I look to you. His confidence and his prayer is in that God has covenanted with him and promises to care for him as the God of his salvation. And guys, let me say this. We must start here when we suffer. Oh, Yahweh, God of my salvation. You must start here. We can pray this same prayer. We have the same covenant God. The same covenant God. The same God of our salvation. When we suffer, we must begin with the conviction that God has covenanted with me by the blood of His Son and He never repents of His covenants. He never turns away from the gifts that He's given to us. And He's given us this covenant and He's promised to be my God and to save me from His wrath and to care for me. To never leave me. We must start here. He's promised to always be with me. He's my God. Start here. When you suffer, or you will have nothing to hold on to. If you don't start here, oh Yahweh, God of my salvation, you will have no hope. But he continues, he says, I cry out day and night before you. His faith expressed again. He cries out. right? He cries out to God, meaning he prays. And to cry out, he's praying in distress. He's in turmoil. But he still prays. I still cry out to you. It says he cries out day and night. This is a continual prayer. He is a man of constant prayer in the midst of this suffering. Right? And let me say this. Let me see if you'll follow with me. He would not go to God day and night in prayer if he was not convinced that God is his God. He wouldn't waste his time if he was not convinced that I am known by God and that I know God. So again, this prayer, him just praying is an expression of faith in his God. And the text says he cries out before God. He prays and gives his complaint about his situation to the Almighty himself. He tells God how he feels and what he wants God to do about it. 
And keep in mind, he's not demanding anything. He's making requests. This prayer, though laying his complaint at God's feet, is full of humility. Full of humility. But he cries out to God. His prayer goes out before God. Let me say this. So often, tell me if this is you. Keep it real. We will cry out to other people. Right? And let me say this. There's nothing wrong with that. The last thing that I want you to do is suffer in silence. Right? There's no such thing as lone wolf Christianity. We're a family. Don't suffer in silence. But so often, we will cry out to other people, friends, family, um, even strangers, right? I'm a cashier. People come into me at the store. How you doing? And they'll just lay out whatever's going in their life. We'll cry out to people. Or we'll just cry out in general. You've been going through an intense time of suffering. You're just walking around your house going over your woes. And it's like you're complaining to your walls. Or we might even sinfully cry out against God. And accuse him of wrongdoing or murmur. But Heman said, my cry goes out before you. The believer cries out to God himself. He takes up his time in prayer. The majority of his complaint is in prayer. The majority of him talking to someone about this is in prayer. No matter how ugly or painful or messy that the prayer might be, he goes to God. So again, early point of application. Go to God and take your pain to him. Do not delay. Do you suffer? Are you depressed? Cry out to your God. Be a praying sufferer. Verse 2, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. The psalmist is asking to be heard. And again, I think that this implies he feels like God is not hearing him. He's asking to be heard. He's saying, hear me, God. Please listen to me. Incline your ear. Bend your ear down to me. I'm so low and you're so high up. Again, faith expressed. He's saying, please bow low to me, a lowly suffering worm, and hear me. Bend your ear low to your child and hear me. And I want you to know this, Christian. If your faith is in Christ, you are always heard by your Father. Period. You're always heard by Him. No matter how bad things might be, God always hears His children's prayer. No matter how you feel. In John chapter 16, verses 26 and 27, Jesus says to His disciples, In that day you will ask in My name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's saying, I'm not going to go to the Father on your behalf. He says, for the Father Himself loves you. Why? Because you have loved Me and have believed that I came from God. So Christian, when you cry out to God, God himself hears you. And he hears you because he loves you. You've been joined to his son by faith. He loves his son, so he loves the bride of his son. He hears you when you pray. And what a thought to know that God actually loves us and hears us personally when we cry out to him. I say that because I don't want you to ever forget this. Because you'll start forgetting things when you suffer. And you'll forget them rather quickly. So hide this truth in your heart and let it push you to prayer in all occasions. Now, now before we go on, we're going to be taking scripture in, 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 in larger chunks for the rest of this psalm. But before we go on, I want you to know something really important or you're going to misunderstand this psalm. Much of what is described for the rest of the psalm is how the psalmist feels. It's how he feels. How he feels about his situation, how he feels about God's attitude towards him. All right, so this is feeling, 
not how it really is. And contrary to what our culture tells us today, feelings can be very different from reality. Okay, facts are facts, and feelings are subjective. And hear me on this. It is a fact that God has covenanted with his people. And he will not reverse his covenant. And he loves them. Regardless of what you feel, that is fact. But the next verses are, again, are an expression of how the psalmist feels. And feelings are fickle. And they're subject to change. And that's why when we suffer, we must first ground ourselves in truth. O Yahweh, God of my salvation. But why does he pray so insistently? Why does he cry out day and night? What's going on? Verses 3 through 5. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. So whatever the situation is, and again, it's not mentioned, he starts off, my soul is full of troubles. My soul is full of troubles. This man is depressed. This is what I read in an old 1800s commentary. This man is soul sick. He's soul sick. He's depressed. Constant problems and heartache have become his life. They're not a part of his life. Constant troubles. He's full of troubles. This is his life. Right? Some of us in here know exactly what I'm talking about. It is your life to suffer. And he feels like he's going to die. He says, my life draws near to Sheol. Sheol means the grave. Like the physical grave. He's saying, my soul draws near to the grave. He's circling the drain. Right? He's at the end of his rope. He feels like he's going to die from this intense depression and suffering that he's dealing with. He goes on to say he has no strength left. He has no desire to do anything. And he's like one set loose among the dead. He's like a walking dead man. And that's what deep depression feels like. Like you're walking dead. He says that he's like the slain that lies in the grave. And the best way for me to explain that is he's like a dead soldier on the battlefield that has been thrown into a mass grave. Like the slain that lie in a grave. And people just keep marching past. And no one pays any mind to him. And no one cares. He's just a dead soldier. Who cares? But the worst part of it is in the end of verse 5. He says, I am like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. He feels like someone who God doesn't remember anymore. And that God is cut off from his hand. He's cut off from the power of God. He's saying, God no longer comes to my aid, and there is no help for me. I am as good as dead. I am God forsaken. And as I said in the introduction, to feel forsaken by God is one of the worst things that a Christian can endure. It is pure misery. This is an intense sorrow that I have a hard time putting into words. But it is real. And it really hurts. And that's what he's expressing. And he then goes on in verses 6 and 7 to credit God as the source of his suffering. He says, you have put me in the depths of the pit in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Now again, I can't stress this enough. This is not an accusation against God that God has done something bad or wrong. 
Right? This is a recognition of divine providence. And let me say this, whenever bad things happen, if you don't recognize that as God's providence, then you don't understand the doctrine of providence or God's sovereignty. He's recognizing this comes from the hand of God. He's saying, God, you're sovereign. You're in control of everything. All that happens comes from your preordained, foreordained, predestined plan and will. Therefore, it is you that brings all of this upon me. That's okay to admit. God, you've laid this upon me. You're the one allowing me to suffer. You're the one that's placed the trial on my shoulders. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually helpful. Because in knowing that the pain comes by the will of God, we find a little bit of implied encouragement. Check this out. God brought the pain. God can take it away too. This pain is not outside the realm of God's sovereignty. If it was, what hope would we have? But since the pain comes from the hand of God because he's in control, he can take it away. And that's why the psalmist daily cries out to God. He's saying, I know you can help me. You control everything. Guys, this is why some people like to, 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 to rag on me a little bit and say that I, I like to talk about you know, like the five points of Calvinism and God's raw sovereignty and everything. It's for a reason. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is so important to us because it roots us in hope, even if the hope is very small. And then in verse 7, he says that he feels like he's drowning under the wrath of God. Just wave after wave of wrath. And he has no escape, just one thing after another. And sometimes our suffering makes us feel like God's wrath is upon us, doesn't it? Like God's punishing us. Have you ever been there before? I feel like God's punishing me for this. I don't know what I did, but things keep happening. And this doesn't happen to people unless God's punishing them. Let me say, let me hear me. God has no wrath for his people. None. He has no punitive justice for his people. The Lord Jesus Christ has taken God's wrath for you, Christian. Now, he disciplines those whom he loves. If you belong to him, he might discipline you. But God does not hate you. His wrath is reserved for those whom he hates. The unrepentant sinner. And not for the child of God. God does not hate you. Know that's true. Know that. But even still, even though we know that truth, in the midst of our sorrow, when it's one thing after another, wave after wave, it can feel like God doesn't love you anymore. It can still feel that way, even though I know, God, I know that Jesus Christ has taken the wrath of God in my place, but I still think you don't like me, or you wouldn't make me go through this. You can still feel that way. Hear me, we try, to, we try to really put a wall around ourselves with good, sound doctrine, and that's what we should do, but sometimes the pain just shatters that wall. That doesn't mean that the doctrine is not true, but that means that the pain is just so overwhelming. You can have great doctrine and still hurt. And still hurt. But the psalmist continues his complaint, verse 8 and 9. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. His suffering is so great that even his friends have abandoned him. And he's saying, God, you, again, you've caused my friends to shun me. Right? You've brought such intense suffering upon me that my friends don't want to associate with me anymore. He has no one. 
God has driven his friends away. He's completely isolated as he suffers. And this is so often the case. Let me stop here and say, sometimes people don't interact with friends. Be honest with yourself, because I think all of us do it at some point or another. Sometimes people don't interact with their friends, especially when their friends are really going through darkness. That happens. The friend of the depressed person does not associate with them much anymore, especially if the depression or suffering lasts for a very long period of time. The friend might think that it's too hard to be around the depressed person, or it's too awkward, or they don't know what to say, or they they just lack compassion in general. Maybe they think that their friend is exaggerating about their soul sickness and about their suffering. They, They may even become frustrated with the depressed friend and say something like, just stop being sad. And even if they don't say it, they think it. Just get over it. God's sovereign, just... Stiff upper lip and keep marching on. And I don't want to talk about it anymore. May this never be said about us. May this never be said about us. We ought to never avoid the hurting. No matter how hard it may be to go around them or how depressing that it is or how awkward it is or how much you don't know what to say, then go in silence. And sit with them. May we never shun our companions. May we never shun our brothers and sisters. Love sacrifices comfort. Love sacrifices comfort. And we love the people of God. It's one of the ways that we know that we belong to Christ is when we love His people. Jesus says, by this the world will know that we are His disciples, that we love one another. Don't abandon your suffering friend. But though isolated and blinded by tears, he says, my eye grows dim through sorrow. He cries so much that he can't see any longer. He says this, I spread out my hands to you. He says, I cry out to you and spread out my hands to you. Consider this in this context. He's saying, Lord, though all have forsaken me, I will not forsake you. Though I don't even feel like you're hearing me when I cry out, I will continue to cry out and wait for deliverance because you are Yahweh, the God of my salvation. He continues to express his trust that God hears him and can help him. So he daily runs back to God and he never ceases doing this because he knows that God is his only hope. It's astounding for us to see that though this man has no relief, He continues to trust God. He continues to pray. This is true faith. This is true faith that though he has no happiness, he continues to go to his God. Though no relief comes, he continues to go to his God. That's faith. Faith perseveres. This is a picture of godly suffering, which I might add should always be our goal. In the midst of suffering, our goal should not just be make the pain go away. Our goal should be faithfulness in the face of pain. And that's what we see here. But the psalmist then goes on to ask some rhetorical questions to God. In verses 10 through 12, and the answer to all of them, I was reading a commentary in the Hebrew, it's the strongest no kind of rhetorical question. The answer is no. 
He says, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Abaddon's the place of destruction. He says, are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Do you work wonders for the dead? He keep, all of these are references to the grave. All right, now hear me on this. Some people read this and they misunderstand it. He's not denying that there is a life after this one. That's not what he's saying. What he's focusing on is earthly death. Keep in mind earlier in verse 3, he says, I, my soul is drawing near to Sheol. It's drawing near to the grave. Do you work wonders for those who are in the grave? In the land of forgetfulness, meaning the land of the dead, just this generic term, an idea for the grave. He's focusing on earthly life. What he's asking is, God, do dead bodies praise you? No. Does a corpse worship you? No. Can a corpse, can a dead body declare your righteousness and praise you? No, they can't. So please, save me. Save me so I can worship you. Save me that I might worship and declare your righteousness and your steadfast love to the people here on earth. That's what he's saying. Save me so that I might worship and show them that you're a faithful God. Guys, this is a godly prayer. He wants to live and be rescued from his sorrow so he can continue to worship. Because for him, he's a godly man. For him to live is to worship. He says, God, save me so that I might continue to praise your name. He does not want the pain to end just so it will not hurt anymore. He wants his pain to end so that people can see God's faithful to his people and so that God might be glorified in it. That's his prayer. He desires to worship God with a full heart, but right now he's empty. He's saying, I want to be filled with joy, Lord, that I might worship with a heart overflowing with your grace. And this should be our heart's cry as well whenever we pray in our suffering. Lord, let the people see your love for me and glorify yourself. That should be our cry. But this believer is tenacious. Just a tena he, just, he has no quit. He will not give up. Even though God has brought him no relief still, he's, at, he's saying, God, I want, to keep, I want to keep living. I want to be rescued so that I can praise you. But no relief comes still. So verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. He continues to cry out. He absolutely will not stop seeking God in prayer. He won't give up. He keeps running to God and asking for help. He trusts that God will hear him. And I can say that because he would not keep praying if he didn't believe that his God heard him. He's a tenacious man. And he comes in the morning, the text says. Meaning before the morning sacrifice is given. He's up before everyone else praying. He wastes no time in going to God immediately to ask for mercy and to ask for grace to sustain him. He's in a constant pursuit of God. Guys, please see verses 2, verses 9, verses 13. All of those. This should be us when we hurt like this. It's, this it's, the, it's the only real repetitive thing aside from sorrow is, God, I cry out to you. I cry out to you. I cry out to you. This should be us when we go through trials, when we hurt. This is godly suffering. To never cease to go boldly before God's throne and to ask for help. To never think that it's pointless to pray, but to pray all the more in spite of how you might feel. This is faith. 
This is faith. That though God has given no relief, we would not stop seeking Him. Faith is often measured by perseverance. But even though His faith is real, the feeling of despair will not lift. We'll read the end of the psalm. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. There is a huge resonating note of hurt and confusion in those last verses. It's all throughout the psalm, but I feel like it's especially concentrated at the end. The psalmist is crying out, why are you doing this to me? I continue to pray. I continue to live faithfully. Why? Why do you cast me away from you when I go to you? Why do you hide your face from me? Why does it feel like you've forgotten me and you're pushing me away? I've suffered, he says, from my youth up. I've suffered your terrors. I have th- I've, I've been dealing with this agony and sorrow for years. I am helpless to stop it. I can't get away. And he reaffirms, God, this all comes from you. And I keep looking to you, but you keep bringing more and more troubles upon me. Why are you doing this to me, God? Why? And verse 18 ends on the note of loneliness. I have no one. I feel like God doesn't care. My only friend is darkness. This psalm does not end on a happy note. And it doesn't end on a happy note because suffering is not always resolved. And suffering is not always ended. This is just how life is sometimes. It's just pain. And for the Christian, it's pain and renewed faith and crying out to God, followed by more pain and continued trust in our faithful God. It's a cycle. Things are not always good. Things do not always end well for us in this life. Sometimes heartache continues. I have no portion of Scripture to tell me how Heman, the Ezraite's life, ended. For all I know, his life ended with this kind of suffering still going on. And his death was merciful from God. For all I know, I I don't know. I'm not saying either way. I don't know. I think that's intentional in the Scriptures. Sometimes suffering doesn't get resolved. Sometimes it continues. But let me say this. I thank God for portions of Scripture like this. They let us know that we're not crazy. We're not crazy for feeling depressed. We're not crazy for feeling like we're alone or that God doesn't love us anymore. You're not crazy for thinking that. I'm not saying you're right, but I'm saying you're not crazy. They remind us, passages like this remind us that these feelings happen to Christians too. Enough of that prosperity gospel nonsense. This is a believer. This happens to us. Often life is suffering. And the people of God are not immune to it. Sometimes God allows us to go through deep 
darkness. And we need to recognize this truth. Let's consider our Lord. What was said of Him? I want you guys to see some good news now. Isaiah 53 verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows. Acquainted with grief. This is our Lord. A man of sorrows. And hear me on this. He suffered by God's hand. Read Acts chapter 4 if you think I'm lying. He suffered by God's hand and God's predetermined plan. He knows how you feel. Hebrews 4.13 says we have a sympathetic high priest who has been tried every way that we have and yet is without sin. He knows how you feel. God has entered into suffering through the Lord Jesus. He can sympathize with you. Hear me out. Have you cried out to God to end your suffering? And He won't. Jesus did the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. And God said, no, you must suffer. Do you feel lonely? Jesus was abandoned and denied by all of His friends and left completely alone to endure ridiculous false trials and, and crucifixion alone. Do you feel forsaken by God? Jesus experienced God forsakenness on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you feel like God is punishing you? The Lord Jesus Christ was actually punished by God in your place in order to save you. And though Christ suffered all of this, no one would ever dare say that God had truly abandoned His Son. On the contrary, God raised Him from the dead on the third day. Now as the people of Christ, as God's people, we can see in a much greater way what we suffer in what Jesus suffered. His is much greater, but we can see a bit of what we go through and what He went through. And, and when we see that since He suffered these things in such a huge way, it makes sense that since we've been united with Him and we belong to Him, that we would suffer some of them as well. And though our relief might not come in three days' time, we know that God has not abandoned us. Why? How do I know that God hasn't abandoned me? Because He did not abandon His Son. The good news for us is that though it might feel like God has abandoned us, God has never abandoned us because we have been joined to His Son by faith. And He will never abandon His Son. We've been adopted into the family of God and He will never treat us any way, in any way different than He treats His own Son. We've been united with Christ. So because of this, we continue to run to our God in faith in the midst of our suffering. I know it's hot, and I've been up here for 43 minutes. But I have six very, very brief things to say to you from this text. And I'm not that good of a preacher. I didn't know where to put them in, so I'm going to put them here. They're important. One, this psalm shows that you are not a bad Christian for feeling depressed. You're not a bad Christian for feeling full of sorrow and abandoned by God. The psalmist was a believer. You're not weird or unfaithful for feeling like this. Two, 
it's okay to pray like the psalmist. To just bleed it out to God. God inspired this psalm to be written so we could see that we can be honest with God about how we feel. Three. Faith can be real even when it doesn't come to strong hope or happiness after prayer. Four. Sometimes all we can do is plead God's covenant and give ourselves to prayer. And what I mean by that is that we plead that God has promised to care for us and love us and has sealed that promise with the blood of his son and then continue to pray. And that's all that there is. Sometimes that's it. Five. We ought to pray this psalm for ourselves when we hurt. Pray it. Walk through it. Commit it to memory. Pray. Cry out. And we should pray it on behalf of others when we know that they're suffering. Weep with your brothers and sisters. Weep with those who weep. Pray for them. Pray with them. And sixth, this psalm ends on a dark note. There is no relief. The song is bleak. It is the saddest song ever sung. But for thousands of years now, the psalmist has sung a much different song. And his eternity with his God has only just begun. And this is the future for every believer as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. That even in the darkest psalm, we can see a, a, a ray of hope that you are the God of our salvation. And we can see most clearly in the covenant of grace through Jesus Christ, your son, that we have a suffering savior who can sympathize with us. We have a faithful covenant God who did not abandon his son to the grave because as your psalmist said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And Lord, we have been united with the Holy One. So we ask that you would instill a, a, a trust and, and faith in us that God has not abandoned us. Put that in our hearts, Lord. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Increase our faith. Help us to suffer in a godly way. And Lord, if we're not suffering now, help us to cry out in praise, thanking you for being so kind to us, because in an instant we can become this psalmist. God, whatever you might bring, we sing great is thy faithfulness, because you will never leave us nor forsake us. You will not abandon us because we are united to your son. We thank you. We thank you for bringing us into your family through his life, death, and resurrection. Please bless and keep us and sustain us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.